Well, welcome. Happy Resurrection Day. We are glad that you are here. No matter who you are, we're glad that you are here. There is room for everybody on Resurrection Day. Even on the very first resurrection, there were all kinds of uh, people. There are the faithful of the faithful. Uh, those were the disciples of Jesus. Uh, by the way, if, uh, if there are any seats in the middle, if you would uh, shift uh, into the middle right now. We've got some folks who are uh, standing in the back. That would be great. It's that annoying thing when you go to the movie theater and you don't want to sit right next to the person, uh, but you got to buy that ticket. They won't let, let you, but uh, you know, this is a church, so we got to at least pretend that we want to sit by one another. So as I was saying, there are the faithful of the faithful. Those were those disciples of Jesus, those ladies that went and discovered that the tomb was empty. And uh, if you uh, consider yourself a faithful, regular part of God's family, we are glad that you're here. Uh, there were also the people who uh, believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but they heard it from someone else. And so they didn't have the same level of confidence as those first eyewitnesses. There was the disciples that were back in the room. Uh, when the ladies got there, they said, he's alive. And they were like, okay, maybe, I don't know, I need to see it for myself. And so if you are a I need to see it for myself kind of person, we're incredibly glad that you're here. Uh, there's room for skeptics on resurrection morning. One of the disciples, Thomas, when Jesus appeared to all the disciples later on that evening, uh, Thomas was using the bathroom or something. He wasn't in there. What a terrible time to have to go potty. Uh, <laughs> you can tell I have a three-year-old. Um, they, uh, they, he gets back and they're like, dude, bro, you missed it. That's my modern translation. Uh, Jesus, Jesus was here. And uh, Thomas says, no, I'm not going to believe it. I can't put my heart in it unless I can put my fingers in his wounds and see that for myself. Uh, and then there were people on resurrection morning that were actively uh, working against the message of resurrection. Those were the people in the Roman Empire, the, the soldiers, the governors, the Jewish uh, leaders. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I don't believe I'm never going to believe. In fact, it annoys me that um, people believe, but I'm here because I, I owe somebody a favor or I feel obligated. I just want to say there's room for you here, and we're really glad that you're here. Uh, so if you have a Bible, would you open it up with me to First Peter chapter 1. If you have a phone, uh, you can Google First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I really would love for you to be able to uh, lay your eyes on this so you're not just taking my word for it. I want to tell you this morning about the 72 most important hours of your life. Now, something may have immediately come to your mind. Like for me, I think of the 72 hours surrounding uh, June 15th, 2002. That was the day that I got married. And the hours surrounding that day were really special. It started uh, on Friday night with my friends uh, who were my groomsmen. They were coming uh, in to visit. They were not from Texas. And so uh, I welcomed them. I got to show them around, take them to places that, uh, you know, were now a part of my life. And then the next day was the rehearsal dinner and, uh, you know, um, we had our rehearsal dinner at Papacitos, which is a great place uh, to have a rehearsal dinner because if you're not sure what um, direction to take your life, fajitas. Fajitas is always the right answer. If you ever come to a crossroad, uh, fajitas is the answer. And then, of course, the next day is the wedding. But before that, we went and played golf. And my groomsmen and I, terrible at golf, but, um, but had, had an incredible time. And then the next day, we went to Hawaii. That's a pretty good 72 hours. Uh, and you maybe had something that came to your mind. Maybe it was around the day that you got married or a job interview 
you right out of college that set you on a career path or an incredible vacation that you went on or the day that your children were born. You can kind of pick which of your children was the most important. Uh, <laughs> you don't say it out loud, but... Um, we, we, we all have some really special 72-hour period, I bet we can think of, but the most important 72 hours that ever happened to you happened 1,986 years ago, give or take a few years. That was the 72 hours from the night that Jesus hosted uh, his disciples in an upper room, uh, what we call the Last Supper. They didn't know it was the Last Supper, but that's what we call it. Uh, he takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, He's arrested there in the garden. He's taken in the middle of the night. Uh, He's put on a fake trial. Uh, Religious leaders had fake witnesses testify against him. He's convicted of uh, crimes that he didn't commit. And then he's tortured, uh, crucified on Friday around lunchtime, uh, lays in the grave on Saturday and the empty tomb on Sunday. That was the most important 72 hours that ever happened to you. If you would ask the disciple Peter about those 72 hours, he would have said those were the worst hours of his life. But 30 years after Jesus had been raised, he wrote this letter that we call 1 Peter. And in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He starts verse 3 by worshiping. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't fall asleep on that phrase, uh, Lord uh, Jesus Christ. When we think Jesus Christ, we just think first name Jesus, last name Christ. But Christ was actually a title. It was a historic title. Uh, prophets uh, throughout Israel had uh, prophesied that there would become, we're becoming a Christ, uh, a Savior for Israel who would reunite Israel with God. And when Jesus began his ministry, there were some things that he was doing that fulfilled those prophecies. But there were other things about him that didn't really fall in line. Like the Christ was supposed to be a king, but Jesus was born in northern Israel. Uh, Or he was born in in Bethlehem, but he lived and was raised in northern Israel. There was no uh, kingship associated with that. He was born of a regular family. He wasn't from Jerusalem, the capital city. So there were things that made sense that he was the Christ. And there were things that didn't really make any sense. And at one point, he asked his disciples, who? are people saying that I am? When you are hearing uh, about me out there, who are people thinking that I am? And some think you're this prophet and some think that. And then he shifts the question to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, he steps up boldly and he says, I think that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I think you are the ones those prophets told us about. You're more than a good teacher. You're the Christ. And 30 years later, he still believes that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see why uh, Peter is so worshipful. Because of his great mercy. Now there's some irony that Peter is thanking God for his mercy. Because I mentioned Peter would have told you the 72 hours surrounding Jesus' death and resurrection were the worst hours of Peter's life. They started out pretty promising though. 
Uh, Jesus assigned him a significant responsibility with another disciple, go and set up the Passover meal. Again, we call that the Last Supper, but it was a Passover meal. Everybody in Israel was having that meal that particular night. And, and, and Peter had the, the opportunity, the privilege of setting it up. There were specific ingredients, specific uh, me, uh, portions that needed to be had, uh, specific kinds of dishes. It wasn't just random. It wasn't potluck. And Peter prepared all of that and made sure it was ready. When the meal started, Jesus began by washing the disciples feet, which wasn't super uncommon if you were going to a meal, especially one with the formality of the Passover meal, uh, you would have your feet washed when you got there. But normally, if you were in the home of a wealthy person, their servant would have washed your feet, but most likely you would have washed your own feet. But here, Jesus, who is clearly the master of these disciples, the teacher, the rabbi, the leader, uh, he puts the towel around his waist and he gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of the disciples. And at first, Peter says, no, 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 this is this is all backwards. And Jesus says, no, it needs to be this way. And so Jesus washes Peter's feet. And then the crazy thing is, just a little bit later in the meal, the disciples start arguing among themselves uh, which one of them was the best disciple. If Jesus had to start over and pick his team, which one of us would he pick first? I mean, what cluelessness that Jesus started the meal by clearly he is the authority and leader by getting down on his knees. And now the disciples are just concerned with which one of them should have the most privilege, the most opportunity, um, who has, should have the most influence. Jesus also said in that meal, one of you is going to betray me. Peter pulls Jesus aside, looks at the other disciples and says, well, I can't speak for them. They do look like an unfaithful lot. <laughs> but I can speak for me. I will never betray you. Jesus says, actually, before the sun comes up tomorrow morning and the rooster crows, you will have betrayed me. You will have denied me. You will have pretended not to know me three different times. Peter doesn't really respond to that because in his mind, that's so ridiculous, so far from the realm of possibility. Jesus leads them out of that upper room, out of Jerusalem, um, to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was. And Jesus begins to pray. And that's a familiar prayer. Uh, Not my will, but your will be done. If there's any way for this cup to pass, let it pass. And Jesus is anguishing in prayer. Meanwhile, he goes back and he finds Peter and the other disciples sleeping. He, He warns them, will you wake up? Will you pray with me? Will you keep watch with me? And they probably hold themselves together for a few minutes. But it's hard to pray when you don't really want to pray and it's late at night. And so they fall asleep again. Eventually, Jesus says, wake up because now is the time and a crowd comes to meet Jesus. They've got lanterns, they've got torches, they've got weapons, they've come to arrest him. And Peter feels like this is his moment. He actually has a sword on him, so he pulls out the sword and he starts swinging to defend Jesus, to defend himself, to defend the other disciples, and he cuts a man's ear off. But Jesus reaches down in the dirt, picks up the man's ear, puts it back on and heals him. Again, showing Peter, you don't get it. You didn't get it when I washed your feet. You didn't get it when I said one of you will betray me and you said never me and you don't get it now. And they arrest Jesus and Peter follows at a distance. So they have this fake trial for Jesus. They've produced these false testimonies against him. And Peter is in the vicinity. And while all of this is happening, someone says, hey, you're from northern Israel where Jesus is from. Are you associated with him? No, I'm not. Number one. A little while later, yeah, I think, uh, I think you are. 
No, I'm not. Number two. Someone says, I know that you are with him. And in our regular everyday wording, Peter says, I swear to God. I do not know this man. The Gospel of Luke says at that moment the rooster crowed and Peter was close enough to Jesus that they made eye contact. Peter rushes out weeping bitterly. So you would think 30 years later when he's writing this letter that we call 1 Peter, he would be referencing God's great judgment. Because that's what he deserved. I mean, if we were going to be honest, I mean, we're not perfect, but we're not, we've not done that. Right. Never me. Never you. But he doesn't. He says, I thank God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. Whenever we hear the phrase born again, most of the time now we hear it in a political context. Uh, born again Christians are going to vote this way. Born again Christians think this about the issue. I really feel like we should take that back from political pundits. Uh, they don't do it justice. It's a very, very important, important term, important designation of followers of Jesus. Because if somebody wants to be religious in our day, the first thing they will attempt is to put on new works. Right. Uh, I used to lie to cover my tracks to make things uh, a little bit easier to grease the wheels at work or at home. And so I would lie. But now I'm going to do something new. I'm going to tell the truth. Or I used to swear and uh, curse, and now I'm going to do something new. I'm not going to do that anymore. I used to be very greedy and think that my money was for me and for my family only, but now I'm recognizing I should give to the poor. That's a good thing. So I'm going to put on some new works. Well, if you've ever tried to put on new works and do it for a while, you realize it's really difficult. So what we do instead is put on a new costume. The new works didn't work out so good, so we just put on a costume of... Letting other people think we are people who are now doing new works. But Jesus says that's not the way it works. In fact, in John chapter 3, he says, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you don't put on new works. You don't put on a new costume. You have to be born again. The man he told that to was a man named Nicodemus who was incredibly religious. In fact, so religious, he didn't know that if he wanted to be associated with Jesus publicly. So he comes to Jesus at nighttime so nobody will see him. He starts this very vague conversation, kind of an introduction, and Jesus just cuts right to it in verse 3. No one can be in the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, we understand that Jesus is speaking in a metaphor because because that's not the first time that you've heard that. Nicodemus probably had never heard that phrase before. And so he asked some very specific questions like, um, I don't think that's possible. And Jesus says you have to be born once physically from your mom, but you have to be born of the spirit. You have to be born spiritually if you want to be in the kingdom of God. And a few verses later, he tells us how that is possible. This new birth in verse 16, which you're probably familiar with, even if you don't come to church that often. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. We are born again by believing in Jesus. And when we are born again, we are born into a new family. We are born into the family of God. Then he says we're also born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have to imagine that Peter probably felt pretty hopeless after he made eye contact with Jesus. He just did what he said he would never do. He made a vow before God, I don't know this person. 
Jesus is tortured, um, crucified. Peter is hiding. Um, then on the resurrection morning, it's not Peter who goes to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for permanent burial. It's other disciples. When he gets word that Jesus has been raised and the tomb is empty, he doesn't believe it for himself. He runs to see that truly the tomb is empty. Later that night, Jesus does appear to the disciples, which you would think on the surface now Peter is all happy and filled with hope. But the Gospels tell us that Jesus kept that interaction very brief. So they never talk about Peter's denial. His last interaction with Jesus was, I swear to God, I don't know him. And Jesus knew that. They made eye contact. He knew exactly what would happen. Now Jesus is alive. And so his kingdom is going to go on. His ministry is going to go on. But I'm guessing Peter thinks to himself, but I can't be a part of it. And I'm messed up so royally that everybody else is going to go on with this. But now I'm left out. And so what Peter does probably what any of us would do. He goes back to the life he had before Jesus. He goes back to where he's from in northern Israel and he goes back to fishing. Not because he wanted to take his mind off of it because Peter was a professional fisherman before he met Jesus. He just went back to his old life. And there again in his old life, Jesus meets him on the shore of the lake. And this time they do talk about what happened to Peter. And Jesus restores him and redeems him. So now because of the resurrection of the dead, Jesus has a future. The ministry of Jesus has a future. And now Peter does too. He has a living hope. Verse 4. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now when we read the word inheritance, I'm guessing that for most of us regular people, it doesn't mean that much. Uh, Because, like I read recently, that in the next 30 years, the ultra-wealthy in the United States, I'm looking around, I don't see anybody ultra-wealthy in here. Uh, So the ultra-wealthy will uh, pass down uh, $16 trillion uh, to their sons and daughters. In the next 30 years, in the United States, 13 trillion, 16, 13. I got a lot of numbers in my mind. $16 trillion passed down. I mean, that's not a number that doesn't even make sense to me. I can't wrap my mind around it. At the same time, I read that there was a billionaire who passed away, and in her will, she left $12 million to her dog. Her grandchildren were not super pumped about that, so they sued the dog. This happened in your lifetime In the United States of America, God bless America, Uh, proud to be an American. The judge ruled that, in fact, the dog did not need $12 million, only needed $2 million. They gave the other 10 to charity. Yeah, I mean, that happened. So when we read the word inheritance, I mean, that's what... I mean, we're talking about people who we'll never meet, never bump into. We read about their lives. You know, the rest of us are just going to get some walking around money. And we miss out on the importance of this word. But when you were born again, you were born into a family that had a lot of resources. In fact, you were born into a family that had all the resources. And you have an inheritance. You have eternal life and you have eternal reward. 
And that inheritance, Peter says, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. My grandfather passed away a few years ago, and when we were going through his home to do that thing where, you know, what are we going to keep, what are we going to sell, what are we going to give away, I was digging through one of his drawers, and I found a wallet that he had. It was about 50 years old, but it was brand new. Uh, Two things that you need to know about my grandfather is he loved a good deal, and he kept everything. And so my guess is that 50 years before, he found a wallet that was such a good deal, he said to himself, I'm going to buy two of these. And then he only ever used the one, and he kept the other one in a box. It was totally untouched, still in its wrapper. None of my cousins cared anything about it. So I took it, and I've used it for the last couple of years. But about a month ago, I noticed that it was starting to fall apart, kind of come unglued, you know, probably because it was on sale and not that well made, and also because it was 50 years old. Anything that you inherit in this world, it has an expiration date. It's going to fall apart. Uh, Even if you were a part of the ultra wealthy, which, by the way, I want to come over to your house. Uh, Even if you were the ultra wealthy and you got so much money passed down to you, you couldn't even spend it in your lifetime. Eventually you would expire. Everything you inherit in this world will expire. But Peter says not what we inherit in the kingdom of Jesus, that eternal life and that eternal reward. It is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. This is another way of saying what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now what's interesting is Peter is writing this letter that we call 1 Peter, 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, to a group of Christians who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and have told people. And because they've done that, and because they are a minority group in the Roman Empire, occasionally that message was welcomed as good news, but often it was persecuted. And so this group that are reading Peter's words 30 years after Jesus' resurrection have literally had things stolen from them. They have been thrown in jail. Some of them have given their lives. So imagine how meaningful it is to read these words. And Peter, he's got investment in it too. Because after Jesus restored him and redeemed him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after his little fishing trip, uh, Jesus said, I'm giving you a mission, a mandate. I want you to take this good news of my life, death, resurrection, and return. And I want you to tell the whole world. I want you to start with Jerusalem. Then I want you to go to the county surrounding that. Then I want you to take it to the ends of the earth. And Peter and his friends, they do that. And sometimes it was met as good news. And lots of people believed. In fact, that's why we're still here 1,986 years later. Because they were faithful and people believed. But oftentimes... That message was rejected and persecuted, and Peter ended up in jail multiple times. In fact, a few years after he wrote these words, we call First Peter, he was crucified in Rome. History tells us just like Jesus had been. So what Peter is saying to these first readers, they can steal from us all they want. They can persecute us, they can push us to the margins, they can take from us. But the one thing that they cannot touch is our eternal life and our eternal reward. Because look what it says in verse 5, you are being guarded by God's power. That word kept and guarded, it's the picture 
of a military garrison fortifying a city. Peter says, no one can steal this from us because God himself is guarding it for us. You can imagine that they probably felt like they were losing. And we believe that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. We believe it, we believe it, but no one is acting like it's good news. And Peter says, no, we're winning. Through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You can't see that eternal life and that eternal reward right now. But Peter says it is coming. And God is the one protecting it. The reason I said at the beginning that that was the best 72 hours of your life is because look at this list. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I can experience mercy. We've been given a new birth into the kingdom of God. A living hope. Us regular people are going to receive an inheritance that is being protected by God's power. And we will receive our salvation. What 72 hours are you going to compare to that? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 He said these very simple but specific words. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And on this resurrection day, I want to encourage you to do that even right now. Examine yourself. Have you given your life to new works? Have you given your life to a new costume that looks real Christian? Have you given yourself to church? Or have you given your life and faith to Jesus? How are we born again? By believing in Him. Are you in the faith? And if you realize today, whether you're a professional Christian, I mean, you come here so much, we ought to pay you. We're not, but we ought to. Or you're here for the very first time and and haven't even been around a church and you can't even remember the last time. If you realize... I have given myself to a lot of things, but I have never given my faith to Jesus. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, says in Romans chapter 10, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Could you do two very simple things? Are you willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? To have enough faith to say it out loud. Not just whisper it to yourself, not just think it in the privacy of your own thoughts, but I am convinced, at least convinced enough that I'm going to say this out loud, Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to believe in my heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. I find it interesting that he says, believe in your heart. There is a role for your mind, a very important role for your mind, but in this instance it says, believe in your heart. Maybe even today you haven't had time to go and Google about the resurrection of Jesus, right? You don't know the history of it. But is there just something inside of you saying, I do believe this. Even if I don't have all the evidence, I do believe. Scripture says that if you are willing to do those two things and you can do them, that you are born again. And you've been born again into a new family. And in that new family, you have an inheritance. And you are being protected by God's power. Why? Because of the best 72 hours 
that ever happened to you. Let's pray.